And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, these Canaanite people. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What Joshua said to all of those people was, you have to decide what you're going to do. We made up our minds and our family. I've made up my mind. I'm going to fight for my family. We're going to serve the Lord. God bless you. Please be seated. Fight for family. We are the family of God, but we're also made up of human families. Group of people united by the ties of marriage, blood, and adoption. Allows there to be interaction, nurturing inside the nuclear family. The family that God designed in the beginning, it is the foundational institution for human society. The first family was formed by God. Adam, taken from the dust of the ground. Eve, taken out of Adam. Children born of this monogamous union. One man, one woman, committed for life in a relationship of fidelity or faithfulness. This is what God formed in the first family. The Lord then gave laws to govern family life and societal life that would protect the integrity of the family and all the society. As a result of obeying God's commandments, it would protect individual integrity, the security of the home, and indeed the entire nation of Israel. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, those ten covenant relationships that he established with us. In Commandments 1 through 4, called the first table of the law, God is most focused on our relationship with him, that vertical relationship. Commandments 5 through 10 are known as the second table of the law that really govern our relationships with other people, the second table of the law. Jesus was asked what the great commandment was. He told them that the great commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and great commandment. The second, Jesus said, is like unto it that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said on these two commandments that summarize both the first four commandments, the second six commandments, the first table of the law, the second table of the law, on these, these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything written in the Old Testament is in summary form, love God with your whole being, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these last six commandments, commandments five through 10, they speak much about our interactions with other people. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's the fifth commandment. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And Jesus took it to the heart level and said, thou shalt not hate. And then the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a call for moral fidelity 
and against any immoral act. And the Bible spells out what immorality is. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, or you should be content with what you have. The ninth commandment the Lord gave, you shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And the tenth commandment dealt with the motive or the heart that underlies all sin. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his livestock, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't just take it. Don't even deal with it internally. These commandments governed life and preserved the family. Now, in our culture, pressure to redefine the family has produced new definitions. But when you redefine the family that God defined, there are unintended consequences that you will reap in your life. You can make a choice, but you cannot control the consequences. They are established by the laws of sowing and reaping by the Lord. So in our culture, we've seen the growing prevalence of same-sex couples. Couples living together, but not committed in marriage. And then the gender identity question that seems to plague many people. We know that God loves people, even people who are confused or corrupted in their gender identity or in the relationships that they have with other people. We also know the Bible said that God is angry with the wicked every day. People who go on in their wickedness are on the wrong side of the wrath of God. My mission today has not been to condemn anybody, but to call us to a commitment to Jesus Christ and his word. Amen. It is not my place, not my right. I'm not qualified to judge anyone. But the Bible says that God will judge immoral people. My mission today is to teach the truth and fight for family. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If we want our nation to be blessed, then we need to live in a way that God can bless us. If we want God to bless our family, then we need to live in such a way that God can bless our family. We can't ask God to bless the mess that we've created by breaking his word. Amen. The state of the family is a state of concern. A Pew Research Center study published September 14th 2023 made the following observations. The American family has undergone significant change in recent decades. There is no longer one predominant family form and Americans are experiencing family life in increasingly diverse ways. In 1970, 67% of Americans aged 25 to 49 were living with their spouse and one or more children under the age of 18. Over the last past, over the past five decades, that share has dropped to 37%. There's been a 30% decline in biblically ordained family structures. 
So we see in our culture, married with kids, living together with kids, living as a single parent, married with no kids, living together with no kids, and parents with other families. And then since 2015, same-sex marriage became legal nationally in the United States of America. And the proportion of Americans living in same-sex marriages has really gone on the increase. In 2021, uh, the Census Bureau of 2020, there were over 700,000 same-sex married couples in the United States, or about 1% of married couples. There's an additional 500,073 same-sex couples cohabitating but not married. In total, about 1.2 million same-sex households in the United States of America. Now, this is a small minority of households in our country, but I would like to remind you that Satan is never content with the minority. It's like Paul said, a little yeast changes the entire loaf of bread. And a little sin gone unchecked in your life, in your family, in your country will corrupt the entire country. When Abraham was bargaining with God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, he got down to say to God, if you can just find 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare this city? In Sodom, the scale had tipped and there were no longer a minority, not 1%, but the majority of Sodomites were living in immorality and God destroyed that city. So I just want to say to you, at what point do we become alarmed? At what point do we fight for our families? At what point do we say, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord? For erosion turns into an avalanche and a little becomes a lot. So I say in your life, you need to take a stand today for truth and for God. And you need to say, as for me and my house, we, we shall serve the Lord. There's a growing concern over children, young people, young adults, and older people who struggle with transgenderism. 1.6 million adults and youth identify as transgender. 0.6%, 13 to 17. Like 0.5% of adults. And you can go through statistics, search for them, and find them. And it's heartbreaking to see a person, not by nature, but by nurture, not by the way God created them, but by how their mind has been confused by culture, by education, by the absence of a father or mother figure in their life, by Satan, by certain perhaps traits in their life that parents didn't know how to work with. Here is an innocent child struggling with who they are. What is their sexual identity? I'm not here to condemn those people, but I am in here to condemn the sin of changing what God made you to be into something God did not design you to be. We need to rescue confused people out of that delusion. The increase of gender dysphoria. As I kind of said, 
is not the lack of a nature that God gave, but a lack of healthy nurturing of children that grow up in often dysfunctional homes. God gave us the biblical model for a family. I refer to it, but I want to specify Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, him, male, and female created he, them. And God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He said more about subduing it. But it takes a man and a woman to produce offspring. I know this is not biology 101, but if we are to see the continued blessing of society, then we need healthy homes that consist of one man and one woman committed to one another for life. Amen. Jesus referred back to this on the screens, Mark 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, let me pause to say they were asking Jesus about divorce. Is it okay to divorce? Jesus said from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. I taught on this this past Wednesday evening. And the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate, or the good old King James put asunder. Now, the sociological impact on families who are struggling is huge. The political culture in America has shifted dramatically. I mentioned sometimes there's an erosion that leads to a landslide. I said it kind of off the cuff, never really thought of it that way. But eventually there will be a landslide if you allow erosion to continue. So we're seeing fewer marriages form. Marriage later in life. Marriage is more likely to end in divorce. Marriage deciding to not have children or to have very few children. I read that, you know, let a man have his quiver full of them, that a full quiver was five. Now, most of us don't have five children, but I'm just saying whatever that means. But if you just have 1.2 children, or 1.8, or two, you're barely replacing, you're not multiplying. So there you go. There's no conviction in the room right now, but I'm just kind of talking about where the family's headed. Then, living together outside of marriage has gone from forbidden to rare to almost expected. Maybe you're like test driving that person like you would a car before you buy. That's more common in our culture. People often say we've been together X number of years. We've been married so many years. I always wonder... What does together mean? Holding hands, dating, exactly what do you mean by that? But surveys show that the family no longer holds the same place in the minds of Americans as it used to. So today and in this month of February, I've just come to teach on the family, preach on the family, 
fight for the family. It is the core of a culture. And if we have a strong culture, it must be sustained by godly, healthy families. Dysfunctional homes lead to a lack of educational attainment, trouble in schools, crime increasing, depression, hopelessness, despair, immorality, confusion over gender role. Our culture must be a firm foundation for our family. Many years ago, Judge Joseph Story on the Supreme Court in the early 1800s said that marriage is the parent and not the child of society. It is the source of civility and a sort of seminary for the republic. In other words, he said the country didn't build the family. The family built the country. And if we want the country to be healed, the family must be healed. And if the family is healed, then we must let God forgive us and heal us. And we must fight for family. Psalms 11.3 asks the question, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do when the foundation erodes away, when it's destroyed, then the superstructure, the building that is built on it will collapse. And we are seeing the collapse of a culture because of eroding and the foundation that is being destroyed. But I have come in the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to help rebuild the foundations that may be crumbling, that God would help restore the family to us and to our country and to our culture. February this year, I preached from Malachi 4 and 5. I just want to read these two verses again, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn. Repentance is a turn, amen? And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. We are acutely aware of the modern assault on the family and the attempt to deconstruct the foundation of family. But I want to just remind you that the family has always been under attack. From Eden to the end of the world, Satan has always tried to divide and destroy the family. In the days of Joshua, this leader who is in the last chapter of his life, the final days of his earthly existence, he is going to transition out. A future of uncertainty exists. For the people of God that will go from Moses to Joshua to the judges that would come and go through that period of time when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king, no leader in Israel. Joshua had succeeded Moses as leader. Moses led them out of Egypt. Joshua led them into the promised land. But now he will die and the people will serve the Lord as long as he lives and as long, long as his peers live, but they're headed in a direction of paganism and idol worship. So Joshua calls all the leaders of Israel together, and God begins to speak through him to them. 
He said, I want to remind you of where we came from. Your forefathers, they worshiped idols on the other side of the Euphrates River in the land of Mesopotamia in Chaldea. And then when we were in Egypt, some of us to come to idol worship of the Egyptians, but God brought us out and now he's brought us in and God has been faithful to us all through the 430 years of bondage, all through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And now here we are in the land of Canaan and God has brought us to a crisis point, to a pivotal time in our history. So in Joshua 24, 14, he calls them and says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He said, I want you to have a healthy fear of God, a reverence of God. Even in the New Testament, the Bible said for our God is a consuming fire. He will judge all sin and unrighteousness. It is appointed unto us once to die and after that the judgment. So Joshua said, fear the Lord and then serve him in sincerity and in truth. It is one thing to be sincere and we should be sincere, but sincerity alone will not save you. It also takes truth. You have to believe the truth and not a lie to be saved. So Joshua calls them not just to lopsided religion, but loving God with your heart and loving God with truth the way God says you should love him. One without the other is imbalanced and will lead to failure. He tells them to put away all the strange gods. It's amazing that after coming out of the Chaldees, after coming out of Egypt, evidently there are some of the gods of the past that have sneaked back into their camp. Among them are gods from Mesopotamia. Among them are gods from Egypt. But now Joshua says it's time for a house cleansing. We've got to get rid of everything that we brought along. All the stuff that has attached itself to us because God wants to give us victory, but we've got to clean out our houses, clean out our hearts if we're going to see God work for us. Then he says, choose. You've got a choice. He didn't tell them to just live off of emotion, come to church and get involved in the service and feel good, and walk out and be the same. He said, you need to choose. Joshua 24, 15, our text. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So he said, you've got to make up your mind today. In verses 14 and 15, it's amazing. Josh refers to idols from three eras of time. The gods of the Chaldeans, the gods of the Egyptians, and the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the people that lived around them now in Canaan land, the ones they were supposed to conquer and kick out of their land. So Joshua says, you've got to make up your mind, and, but you're going to serve something. So if you don't want to serve God, he said, pick your God. Pick the God 
of the Chaldeans, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, those Amorites. But pick a God because you will serve someone. You will serve something. You may think that you're just your own person, that you don't worship anything. But we are creatures of worship. And we will ultimately worship someone or something, even if it is ourselves. But Joshua said, you can choose what you worship, but it is a choice that you must make. Gods of the distant past, gods of the past of Egypt, gods of the peers around you. You will serve something or someone. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You're going to either love the one and hate the other, hold to the one and despise the other. Joshua was saying, choose to this day whom you will serve. But the last phrase of Joshua 24, 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was saying, as a leader of the entire nation, I can try to lead you. I can try to teach you, but I cannot choose for you. God gave you a free will. And he's not going to force you to serve him. If you want to go to heaven, you'll choose to serve him. But Joshua's saying as a leader, I cannot impose my will on you. I cannot force you to love God. But he said, I've made up my mind that as for me, I've made up my mind. And as for the house I'm going to lead, I've made up my mind about the way I'm going to lead my house. As for me... In my house, you do whatever you're going to do. Serve whatever God you choose. But if for me and my house, we're making a decision today. We've made a choice today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says to his people, it's time to draw a line in the sand. It's time to take a stand. No more ambivalence. No more sitting on the fence. No more indecisiveness. No more trying to decide one day to the next whether you're going to serve God or not. It is not an emotion. It is a choice. And with the choice comes power and grace from God. God will never force you to repent. But when you do, he'll give you the power to live a changed life. God will never force you to choose. But when you choose, he will give you the power to live out the commitment that you make when you choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You've got to make up your mind to fight for your family, Joshua. Moses, when he was an adult, had to choose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Those three Hebrew young men taken away to Babylonian captivity had to make up their mind that they would not bow to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. They said, we're not careful to answer you. We don't know if God is going to deliver us from the fiery furnace or not. But one thing we know, he will deliver us out of your hand. So they made a choice, not fearing the consequences. When Daniel was told that it is now illegal to pray, he still raised his window. He still prayed to God three times a day, even when it became illegal every person who has ever served the Lord had to make up their mind that it doesn't matter what comes my way. It does not matter.
matter what opposition I might face, by the grace of God, I choose this day to serve the Lord. In the early church, the apostles, they had to make up their mind that they would preach the truth when they were threatened, beaten, jailed, and martyred. And we... We may be a little soft compared to our persecuted brothers and sisters in difficult places around the world. We need to pray. We need to make up our mind. Have the courage of our convictions. If you don't have courage, you probably don't have convictions or just preferences. You'll capitulate under the right form of pressure. Whether it is People making fun of you, the threat of jail, going to jail, being put to death. If you'll capitulate for anything, it's a preference and not a conviction. So says the Supreme Court in a distant case. So Joshua said, don't choose tomorrow because tomorrow never comes. This is the day of salvation. So he calls him to a day. Choose you this day. Quit putting it off for a more convenient season. Quit saying when I get older, when I graduate, when I get this job, when I get married, when our children get over, quit putting it off. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You've got to make up your mind to fight for your family. Fight. Oh, pastor, that's, a, that's an angry word. That's a violent word. As I was preparing for this message, I was reminded that the Bible is a book of battles and wars. There was war in heaven and God kicked Satan and his followers out of heaven. That battle occurred before Eden. I was searching for this and I found a source. It was intriguing. I almost got sidetracked too long. But there are at least 87 wars or battles mentioned in the Old Testament. 87 plus specific battles that were fought in the Old Testament. Bible tells us in Hebrews that those warriors waxed valiant and fight. And in the New Testament, we recognize the place of civil authority and the military to fight on our behalf. But the weapons we use are not bombs and guns, but worship and prayer and fasting and obedience is the way that our battle is won. Paul said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 4, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
For too many people, they would just have to say, we wrestle not. Paul's saying we wrestle, but we don't wrestle with our fists, with our bodies, with jujitsu, and maybe there's a place for that. I don't want to get into that. But he said, we've got the superior warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting the sinner. We're not fighting the person who is corrupted. We're not fighting the person who is confused about their gender identity. We're not fighting against the person who's struggling, who's cohabitating outside of marriage. Our weapon, our warfare is against the devil and against sin and the spirit of the age. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. So if you're not a fighter, you're a quitter. Smile when you say that, right? You're going to let Peer pressure, life, sin, culture, push you around. I've learned that if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. You've got to choose. You've got to make up your mind. You may feel weak, but you can wax valiant and fight. As you choose, God gives you power. To live out that choice. Paul said. To fight the good fight of faith. And lay hold on eternal life. You're going to get to heaven by pressing your way there. By saying no to sin and yes to God. By submitting yourself to God. So you can resist the devil. You're not going to make it to heaven. Just kind of wafting through life like a gentle breeze. I'm glad the Holy Ghost is described like a rushing, like rivers of water, right? I'm glad it's described as a rushing, mighty wind. Not a passive force, but a powerful force. Paul said, I fought with the beast at Ephesus. Probably he didn't wrestle with the lion, but he wrestled with the spirits of that city as he established the gospel there. So today, Today, I'm calling you to fight for family. This is a call to arms. Everybody in the family of God, to fathers and mothers, to sisters and brothers, to young and old, to single and married. We need to fight in the spirit and by our example for family. Fight for family by living with integrity. Creating a covering for your family. Fight for your family in prayer and fasting. Fight for your family by taking a stand against evil. Fight for your family by standing for what is right. Fight for your family by establishing boundaries in your life and in your home. Other families may not feel the same as you. You cannot choose for them, but you must say, as for me and my house, we're not going there. As for me and my house, we're not watching that. As for me and my house, we're not listening to that or playing that game. 
As for me and my house, we're not saying that. We're not wearing that. We're not doing that. We're not joining that conversation. We're not aligning with those cultural norms. As for me and my house, we're not aligning ourselves. We're not going to like what God hates. I wish some of us would wake up about what we like on social media. Don't like what God hates. As for me and my house, I'm not supporting that agenda. I'm not supporting that spirit. As for me and my house, I will stand up and speak out. I will not lie down and die. As for me and my house, we will vote the values of the Bible. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every generation has to choose. I cannot live on the choices my grandparents made. I'm blessed by them. I cannot live on the choices my parents made. But I'm blessed by the way they raised us because of the choices they made. But over and over in my life, as a child, in my teen years, in early adulthood, there were places, crisis points in my life when I had to choose who I would serve and what I would walk away from and what I would walk toward. And in our generation, there is the myth that you can have it all, that you can love God and serve evil. There's this passage, I put it outside my nose, it's too long, but there was public worship and then private paganism that existed in Israel under numbers of kings. It'll be a future study. What we don't want is that you come to church and worship God in public and then you go home and you've got a high place of sin and idolatry and paganism and carnality in your home. We've got to get homes right and church right if we're going to get a culture right. Every generation has to choose. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a noted pastor who resisted Adolf Hitler. I do not agree with everything he said or did, but he said silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Adam, you didn't tell Eve no, and your silence was permission. Abraham, you did not tell Sarah, no, we're not going to have a child by Hagar. And your silence was permission not to speak is to speak and not to act is an act itself. He also said that cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship or obedience to Jesus. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in our lives. He was put to death at the age of 39. Martyred for his faith in Nazi Germany. 
Today, I just want to go on record as saying that there is no place in God's kingdom for complacent Christians. There is no hope for the church member who cannot or will not be light in darkness, but who prefers to stay in the shadows and live in shades of gray. There is no room for cowards at the foot of the cross. And the kingdom of God has no place for the undecided, uncommitted, and double-minded. And there is no place in heaven for anyone who is ashamed of Jesus Christ. For if you are ashamed of him, as I said, he will be ashamed of you. Isaiah spoke of a time when darkness covered the earth and dark, gross darkness covered the people. But he said in the middle of that, the Lord would arise and his glory would be seen on you. We, as the children of God, shine as lights in the world and we hold forth the word of light. We are lights in the darkness of this world. We must be a contrast culture in the way we think, in the way we live, in our eternal values. We look at things that you cannot see that are eternal. We live by a totally different value system than the fallen world around us. Fight. Got to fight for family. When David was king of Israel, there was a famine in the land. David asked the Lord why, and God said, well, because Saul destroyed the Gibeonites. He annihilated them, and so this famine has come, and you've got to find a way to make amends. So David goes to the Gibeonites, and I'm not sure the deal he struck was exactly what he should do, but this is what he did. They said, we want you to deliver to us the descendants of Saul, sons and grandsons, and we're going to kill them. We're going to hang them up to be exposed to the elements until their flesh rots, and Everybody will see the shame on them that they brought on us. So David agreed. And the Gibeonites killed the sons of Saul, his descendants, seven of them, and hung them on trees. Two of the men that they killed were sons of a woman named Rizpah. Her boys are hanging out there, rotting Exposed. The Bible said that Rizpah, the daughter of Yahya, the mother of two of the men, she went over to where that horrible sight was. Nobody would dare even look at it in this congregation, and not me. And she spread some burlap on a rock. She camped out there. The Bible said she stayed there the entire harvest season, possibly as long as five months Rizpah stayed. And in the daytime, when the scavenger birds, the birds of praise, tried to come down and tear at their flesh, Rizpah would chase them away. All day long, for five months maybe, she kept the vigil of saying, I know they're dead, but they're still mine, and you can't have them. And she fought for her family. When the sun went down and the night came, coolness came, And the wild animals would come at night, the predators. The Bible said that Rizpah, she stayed there at night and she stopped the wild animals from eating them at night. Rizpah, day and night, kept the vigil over his sons. I thought about the commitment that this concubine of Saul demonstrated over her two boys. 
And I thought about what commitment really is. How much are we willing to fight to fend off the adversaries of our families? So today, I preach to myself. I preach to my family. I preach to you. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you fight for family?